Relations between Japan and the United States steadily went downhill after the Panay incident. Japan felt her position was one of dominance in the Orient and worked toward that order. The United States felt that the open door policy we had established with China should be upheld as it had been in the past. In November of 1938, Japan proclaimed that it was establishing a new order, which, in the words of the Japanese government, would ensure the permanent stability of East Asia. Japan said, This new order has for its foundation a tripartite relationship of mutual aid and coordination between Japan, Manchukuo, and China in political, economic, cultural, and other fields. Its objective is to secure international justice, to perfect the joint defense against communism, and to create a new culture and realize a close economic cohesion through East Asia. Japan is confident that other powers will, on their part, correctly appreciate her aims and policy and adapt their attitude to the new conditions prevailing in East Asia. In other words, Japan no longer recognized the right of any country to trade with China but herself. As far as Japan was concerned, the open door policy was now nailed shut. The United States, on its part, did not see things that way and expressed its opposition to the Japanese grab of power in the Orient. In accordance with the provisions of the Treaty of Commerce and Navigation between the United States and Japan of 1911, the United States now notified Japan that we were terminating the treaty in six months. The canceling of this treaty with Japan meant that we would no longer trade with the Empire of Japan. Japanese goods would no longer be allowed in this country. Furthermore, oil, precious oil, would not be sold to Japan. However, rather than enforce this cold fact on Japan and force her to seek the resources she needed to survive by military actions, Secretary of State Hull said that although we would not renew the treaty of 1911 with Japan, we would continue the old one on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on how well Japan observed our open-door policy in China. This, it was felt, would curb Japanese expansion in the Orient, as well as her ambition. And for the most part, it did. The Japanese Foreign Office talked with our ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, and stated that they did not realize that impressions existed in the United States that various acts by Japan in China were deliberate on the part of the Japanese with the intentions of expelling American interest in China. Furthermore, Foreign Minister Nomura went on to give categorical assurances that Japanese military forces had been given orders to pay every possible attention in their power to protect and respect American property and citizens in China. But in August of 1940, all that changed. Prince Konoye was Prime Minister of Japan once again and he sought the construction of the new order of Greater East Asia. He went on to say that Japan could not be hamstrung to the United States' whims on how Japan carried out her policies in Asia, and that Japan's new order of domination and control would include not only China, Indochina, 
but also the oil-rich regions of the Netherlands East Indies as well. This was indeed a hostile declaration for Japan to make, but as Japan saw it, she had little or no choice. It was in September of 1940 that our ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, sent to the State Department a message of more than 12 pages. Up until 1940, Mr. Grew's recommendations to the State Department had been an advocacy of constructive statesmanship through conciliatory methods and the avoidance of coercive measures in dealing with Japan. Now, however, in the face of the aggressive Japanese moves against American rights and interests, especially in China, it had become more and more difficult a task to talk of conciliation. He pointed out that the United States and Great Britain were leaders of a way of life which was being threatened by Germany, Italy, and Japan. For it was the purpose of those powers to impose by force of arms their will upon conquered peoples, and in attempting to deal with such powers, uses of diplomacy are generally useless. As Ambassador Grew put it, Diplomacy may retard, but not effectively stem, the tide of ambitious nations. Force, or a display of force, can alone prevent those powers from attaining their objectives. Furthermore, Mr. Grew went on to say that he felt that Japan had submerged all moral and ethical sense and had become frankly and unashamedly opportunists, seeking to profit by the weakness of others. It was also his opinion that the only reason that Japan did not take a greater liberty in China was because the United States had protested vigorously and that the Japanese, out of their respect for our potential power, had backed off. Relationships between the Empire of Japan and the United States were almost ruptured in the middle of 1940. In September of 1940, Japan signed a document that shocked the United States. The name of the document was the Tripartite Agreement. It was signed by Germany, Italy, and Japan. It was an agreement whereby the three powers pledged their support to one another in case they needed it. In reality, it was directed at the United States. At this time in history, we must remember that Hitler's Germany had engulfed Europe. France had fallen. England was all that remained between the United States and Hitler's aggression. This tripartite agreement gave the United States a warning to stay out of Hitler's war in Europe and the future wars of Japan and China. If the United States did not, the United States was under the threat of a combined attack by both powers. Hitler did one other thing at this tripartite conference. Since he had defeated France, by right of conquest, French Indochina now belonged to him. As a gesture of his goodwill toward the Japanese, and because French Indochina was in Asia anyway, he gave it to Japan. When the United States heard how it had been threatened by these three powers, it reacted rather negatively. Secretary of State Hull said that the announcement made of this alliance merely makes clear a relationship 
which has long existed. After issuing this press statement, Secretary of State Hull next had a meeting with the Japanese ambassador, who assured him that the tripartite agreement was merely a trade agreement between Japan and Germany. Regardless of what he told Secretary of State Hull, Secretary Hull laid it on the line for the Japanese. He told them that the United States did not recognize Japan's right to go into French Indochina just because Hitler gave them the province. Any attempts by the Empire of Japan to take French Indochina while the war in Europe was still going on would be looked upon by the United States as a hostile act and one that would bring about adverse reactions on the part of the United States. To follow this hotly worded session, President Roosevelt now moved the United States Pacific Fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. A show of force was indeed in the making. It is now the fatal year of 1941, and the age of isolationism is about to come to an end for the people of the United States. Relations between the United States and Japan have worsened. And in February of 1941, with the hopes of making a fresh start, Japan has sent a new ambassador to the United States for talks. Hopefully, he can succeed where his predecessor failed. The new ambassador was Ambassador Nomura, who arrived radiating confidence and peace. But within a few moments after he met Secretary of State Hull, Secretary of State Hull bluntly inquired whether Japan could expect the United States to sit quietly by while Germany, Italy, and Japan, before our very eyes, organized naval and military forces and went out to conquer the balance of the earth. Ambassador Nomura tried to minimize what Hull had said and went on to say that he believed his government would not make any further military moves unless forced into it by American economic pressure. But any hopes of any peace was soon shattered when on July 24, 1941, Japan made her first bold move to take over Southeast Asia. Her troops invaded French Indochina. The United States had warned Japan not to make this aggressive move. When Japan did invade, her ambassador Nomura called upon our Secretary of State Hull, and as usual, it was the same old Japanese argument. Japan had no alternative. It was absolutely essential from Japan's standpoint of view for national security. Japan needed French Indochina for safety of economic reasons. Japan must have an uninterrupted supply of rice from French Indochina. And lastly, Nomura begged the United States not to jump to any hasty conclusions. The United States' reply was stiff and stern. We held that there was no possible justification for Japan to feel that she was threatened by the United States or Great Britain. And we saw no facts upon which Japan could possibly fill Indochina with Japanese military forces. Nobura was requested by the United States to notify his government that the United States and Japanese trade had come to a standstill. The United States was hereby freezing all Japanese credits in this country, and 
all future trade was to be stopped until such time that the Empire of Japan withdrew her military forces from French Indochina. This suspension of trade hit the Japanese hard. It really hit home. It threatened the ultimate paralysis of the Japanese war machine because they could no longer get petroleum in large supplies from us. Japan had to have oil. She had but two ways by which to get it, to fight or to yield something substantial to Western points of view. This indeed was economic war. Japan had 18 months to make up her mind, for by then her oil reserves would be gone. In Japan the crisis grew. What could be done? As far as the military was concerned, there was nothing to worry about. Just turn the matter over to them. Let them sink the American fleet that was in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor, and the whole thing would more or less come to an end. The military chiefs were putting pressure for action on the government of Prime Minister Kanoye. Finally, Kanoye agreed to let the military men have their day and to go before the emperor himself with their wild plans of attacking the United States and destroying its ability to do anything in the Orient. On September 5, 1941, they all went before the august emperor of Japan. After the military had put their plans before the emperor, the emperor began to ask questions. Of General Sugiyama, he asked, How long do you think it will take to end a war with the United States once it has been started? The general came back with, The United States can be disposed of in the South Pacific in about three months. Then the emperor said, When the China incident started, you told me that it would last about one month. The incident has lasted for four years, and there is not a settlement even now in sight. If the Chinese hinterland is too extensive, the Pacific certainly will be boundless. On what do you base these estimates of three months? General Sugiyama hung his head and said nothing. Am I correct to assume that you men will place war ahead of diplomacy? There was a long silence, but it was finally agreed that they would use diplomacy as much as they could, but if diplomacy could not accomplish anything, then they would have to go to war. From that moment on, the military set their plans, for they knew that the objectives set by the diplomatic corps could not be accomplished. The United States would never agree to allow the Japanese to keep French Indochina. In the meantime, the crisis between the two countries worsened. In this same period of time, the United States Cryptographic Department, which had a code name of MAGIC, succeeded in breaking various Japanese codes and ciphers, including the top diplomatic code, and the United States was now engaged in reading the most confidential communications of the Japanese. The existence of MAGIC was unknown to everyone except a few high officials in the United States government. The utmost secrecy was essential for the obvious reason that the Japanese would at once change their codes if they got any hint that their code messages were being read. The messages were picked up by Navy radio monitoring stations and were teletyped to Washington, D.C. 
There they were broken down and then given to trusted couriers who took them to the president and his staff. After they had been read, the messages were collected by the couriers and all were destroyed except two copies. The field commanders and ambassadors, even the second and lower echelons of intelligence sections in Washington, D.C., did not know that there was such a thing as magic. By October of 1941, Prince Kanoye and his old guard diplomatic group were displaced from power. The new prime minister of Japan was to be Hideki Tojo. He was a militarist. He saw solutions of military value only. Everything had a military solution to it. He had been in Manchuria and had seen how easy it was to beat the great Chinese. Back in 1904, the Russians had been taken by the Japanese. He had now come to believe that the Japanese military machine was the greatest in the world and that it could not be stopped by any country. As far as he was concerned, the United States could be knocked down as had all the others. It was also in October that Magic translated the following communication. The message was sent from Japan to the Japanese Consul General in Hawaii. It read, Henceforth, we would like you to make reports concerning vessels along the following lines insofar as possible. One, the waters of Pearl Harbor are to be divided roughly into five sub-areas. Two, with regard to warships and aircraft carriers, we would like to have you report on those at anchor, tied to wharves, buoys, and the docks. Japan was displaying an unusual interest in Pearl Harbor. Why? The answer was that Japan was preparing to attack the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor. Admiral Yamamoto, the most brilliant mind that the Japanese had, as far as the Navy goes, was called in to plan the attack. How would he do it? First of all came the questions. Did Tojo know what he was letting himself in for, asked Yamamoto. What do you mean? Yamamoto, who had been a military attaché to the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. during the 1920s, knew the United States well. He told Prime Minister Tojo that Japan was already working 24 hours a day to produce the goods needed to carry on a war. Well, what about it, asked Tojo. Well, stated Yamamoto, the United States is working a 40-hour week, eight hours a day for five days a week, and her production last year was four times as much as we could produce working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If we get into a war with the United States, she could open up her floodgates of production, and this could well bring about our downfall. Tojo, however, felt quite confident, and despite the warnings of a wiser man, ordered Yamamoto to plan the attack on Pearl Harbor. While Yamamoto was making his preparations for Japan's desperate gamble, the Japanese Foreign Office was trying desperately to get the United States to unfreeze Japanese credits in this country and establish normal trade relations. Japan will now send to the United States a special envoy by the name of Saburu Kurusu to iron out the problem. This was perhaps one of the first warnings that the State Department could receive that the situation was becoming desperate. 
The importance of a special envoy is well known in diplomatic circles. It usually means that if he cannot solve the dispute at hand, the next step to the settlement of the dispute is war. When our ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, was notified that Special Envoy Caruso was going to the United States, he was asked if he could get Pan American to hold its clipper flight long enough in Hong Kong for Special Envoy Caruso to make the flight. Mr. Grew got on the wire at once. The clipper was held and Special Envoy Caruso took off from Hong Kong the next morning. As Mr. Caruso landed in San Francisco before departing for Washington, D.C., he told reporters, I hope to break through the line and make a touchdown. If I didn't have any hope, why do you think I came such a long way? Special Envoy Caruso arrived in Washington, D.C. on November 15th, 1941. While Mr. Caruso and Ambassador Nomura began their talks with Secretary of State Hull, we turn our eyes to the east. There on the island of Etarufu, which is located in the Kuril Islands, Admiral Yamamoto is having a dress rehearsal for what is about to happen at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Yamamoto felt that since war was inevitable, Japan must crush the biggest obstacle first, which in his opinion was the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor. Catch it by surprise. By the time the United States recovered from what had happened, Japan would have everything she needed and could sit back and hold out forever. On November 16th, United States Naval Intelligence, which had been tracking the movement of Japanese ships lost track of many of the Japanese aircraft carriers and some battleships. On November 26, 1941, Secretary of State Hull and Special Envoy Caruso met to discuss the situation. Japan demanded that the United States abandon China, that the United States lift its orders freezing Japanese credits, that the United States resume full trade relations with Japan, and that the United States should exert pressure to aid Japan in securing oil supplies from the Netherlands East Indies. And lastly, the United States should bring a halt to its naval expansion in the Western Pacific. Secretary of State Hull countered with these proposals from the United States. He suggested that Japanese troops withdraw from China and French Indochina, conclude a non-aggression pact with the United States, restate the open-door policy in China, and then the United States would unfreeze the Japanese assets in this country. At this same moment, on November 26, 1941, while the two men are in conversation, the Japanese attack force that will hit Pearl Harbor is up-anchoring. On the other side of the world, on a winter dawn in the bleak bay of Hitokapu, on the island of Etarufu, the massive anchors were rumbling up and the engines were being rung full ahead. On the bridge of the flagship, the carrier Akagi, Admiral Nagamo received message after message wishing him good luck on your mission. For it will be Admiral Nagamo who will lead this strike force against the United States. The ships now headed out to sea. 
the navigation's officers now had their work cut out for them to get to Hawaii. The weather consisted of pounding seas, steady gales, and the thickest kind of fog. It was miserable weather, but perfect weather if you wanted concealment. The ships kept in formation, the carriers in two parallel columns of three, eight tankers trailing behind them, the battleships and the cruisers guarding the flanks, destroyers screening the whole force, and submarines scouting far ahead. No waste was thrown overboard, as it might leave a telltale track to give the position of the Japanese fleet away. The ships used the highest grade fuel to keep smoke at a minimum. And lastly, there was a complete blackout and strict radio silence maintained. Thursday, November 27th. With negotiations seeming to fall off, the Army and the Navy of the United States began to prepare for what could happen. At about 6.30 p.m., dispatches were sent out from Chief of Naval Operations to Admiral Kimmel, who was in charge of the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor and commander of the 14th Naval District. The message read, Top secret. This dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Negotiations with Japan looking towards stabilization of conditions in the Pacific have ceased and an aggressive move by Japan is expected in the next few days. The number and equipment of Japanese troops and the organization of naval task forces indicates an amphibious expedition. Execute an appropriate defensive deployment preparatory to carrying out the tasks assigned. The same message was sent to General Short, who commanded the United States Army at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. November 28th and 29th, while the diplomats were attempting to arrive at some agreement, Admiral Nagamo's task force was well out into the empty North Pacific. November 30th was the last Sunday of peace. Admiral Nagamo's fleet was heading for war with every turn of its propellers. Its course was set for 42 degrees north, 170 degrees east. This was a point far to the northwest of Midway Island where the fleet was to refuel. December 1st, 1941. As the Japanese fleet plowed its way through the Pacific, Magic picked up an important message. Magic, as you will recall, is the code name for the United States Cryptographic Department, which has broken the Japanese code and was decoding all of her secret messages. This message was almost a dead giveaway of what was about to happen. The message read, if relations with the United States break down within the next few days, you are ordered to destroy codes, ciphers, and code machines. Destruction of codes mean but one thing, war. And war so sudden that it would give no time for preliminary withdrawal of diplomats who could carry the codes with them. Despite these war warnings from magic, people in important positions in the government failed to grasp the significance of the messages, and they seemed to go unnoticed. December 2nd, 1941. A message from Commander-in-Chief, Imperial Navy, to Pearl Harbor Task Force, First Air Fleet. Execute attack, 7 December. Now at last, the Japanese personnel were told of their mission, and most of the men thought it was a dream come true.
Around midnight of December 2nd, as newspapers in the United States were beginning to print their morning editions, just west of the international dateline in the cold, empty North Pacific at 42 degrees north, 170 degrees east, it was already mid-afternoon of Wednesday, December 3rd. Here, Vice Admiral Nagamo's task force was assembling for the difficult process of refueling. The weather posed a problem, but everything went off smoothly. There was no hint that their mission had yet been suspected anywhere. Everything had gone perfectly according to plan, and they now had their final attack orders. By evening, the fleet was about 900 miles north of Midway and 1,300 miles northwest of Oahu. At this point, the Japanese attack force veered to the southeast. In the meantime, Wednesday afternoon, the chiefs of staff sent the following message to Admiral Kimmel and General Short in Hawaii. It read, Highly reliable information has been received that categoric and urgent instructions were sent yesterday to Japanese diplomats and consular posts to destroy most of their codes and ciphers at once and to burn all other important confidential secret documents. This is a war warning. December 4th saw the Japanese attack force continue its southerly direction and receive up-to-the-minute information as to what was happening at Pearl Harbor. The information came from its submarines already stationed at the mouth of the harbor. The information received by Nagamo was favorable. No indications of any alerts. The Americans expected nothing. December 5th and 6th were uneventful for the Japanese attack force. Nothing to do but to wait for the moment of strike. The fleet was now at full speed, about 24 knots, and closing the gap of distance between it and Hawaii. And still America slept innocently as she was about to be attacked. Even though warnings were becoming more evident that something was about to happen, the moment fatal was indeed approaching. On Saturday evening, December 6th, at about 10.30 p.m., at Hamilton Air Force Base above San Francisco, a flight of B-17s thundered down the runway and flew off toward Oahu some 2,400 miles away. They are bound for Manila, but will refuel at Hawaii. While they are winging their way toward Hawaii, Admiral Nagamo's task force is racing on its southeasterly course into the deepening night. It would be but a few hours now before they would be some 200 miles off the north shore of Oahu. On Admiral Nagamo's flagship, the Akagi, they had their radios tuned to radio station KGMB, the 24-hour-a-day broadcasting station at Honolulu, Hawaii. They were not listening to the music. They were listening in case the radio program all of a sudden began to yell news of an imminent attack. It would mean that they had been discovered, and at that moment, Admiral Nagama would have to use his judgment as to whether to continue the attack or turn back. But they heard no signs of alarm. 
the normal succession of commercials, music, and chatter flowed unsuspectingly along. It was eight o'clock Saturday evening in Hawaii. The week's military activities were largely suspended. The cocktail parties and dinner parties were well along. Who could have guessed that the Great Pacific War was just around the curve of tomorrow? The Pacific evening was calm in Hawaii. General Short finished his dinner at the Army base at about 9.30 and departed for his residence. Far to the north, Admiral Nagamo's task force was making its turn south and was beginning its final run toward morning. The B-17s from Hamilton Field were well out over the Pacific. The people of the island of Oahu were enjoying the relaxations of a Saturday evening and the Navy battleships were neatly moored two by two along Ford Island. Even though Pearl Harbor was supposedly on a war footing, by a long, complicated collection of accidents, customs, mischances, misunderstandings, overconfidences, and a want of imagination, our great Pacific fortress, which was the key to Pacific mastery, had been brought to a condition in which both were about as completely exposed to the impending attack as could have been possible. There had been no changes in the weekend routines. Virtually the entire fleet had been brought into the harbor and moored where it would offer the surest and simplest target. About one-third of the fleet's captains and one-third of the officer personnel were ashore. There were no barrage balloons up or torpedo baffles. There were no reconnaissance planes aloft. There were no offshore patrols of any kind. The only planes which could have acted upon a warning were parked wing to wing on a four-hour notice. Many naval vessels did not have their anti-aircraft weapons in a state of readiness, and most of the ammunition was locked in the magazines of the ships. With the best will in the world, the guardians of Pearl Harbor had somehow managed to violate nearly every precept of history and of military security. The guardians had thus laid the great naval base as open as possible to the precise form of attack which all of them had recognized theoretically as the most probable type of attack to take place at Pearl Harbor. As midnight passed, Admiral Nagamo's propellers were racing for Hawaii. The Japanese planes would soon be warming up on the flight decks and would be flying to a rendezvous with death and destruction.